heard it, we're kicking off our new series on the family this morning called No Place Like Home, and um, we didn't get to celebrate this the um, last couple of weeks with Palm Sunday and Easter and all that going on, but we've actually, uh, we had a little uh, staff uh, proposal here in the last few weeks, so Jordan and Alex led you in worship this morning. Uh, they are engaged to be married now this October, so we celebrate that with them, and grateful for all God's doing in their hearts and in their lives, and so uh, this will be your premarital counseling over the next six weeks, so um, saving some time, we'll just, yeah, we'll just kind of talk afterwards, and yeah, we're a blessing. So we're going to be, uh, we're going to be focusing on this passage, actually uh, a pretty, pretty large passage, Ephesians 5, 21 down through chapter 6, verse 4, um, for about six weeks, and so this morning we're just going to focus on a few verses um, as we kick off this series, and the title of the series is meant to kind of help us think about the fact that uh, the importance of and the uniqueness of the family, um, that it's a powerful institution that shapes us and that molds us. Uh, things that happened in our families years ago can shape us from years to come. Uh, it, there's really nothing else like it on planet Earth. And there's a reason, and if you think about it, uh, when you think about American television, think about how many of the shows that are considered the most popular of all time center around the family, right? And so whether you go all the way back and you think about, you know, Mayberry and the Andy Griffith show and Aunt B and Andy and all those, or you think current day, the most popular shows on television tend to revolve around the family. A couple today, for instance, one is called This Is Us, right? This is one of the most popular shows on television. It's about uh, three siblings who um, the whole show is always flashing back to their childhood. They're adults now in their 30s, and it's always flashing back to their childhood to show how things that happened in their childhood continue to shape them as adults. And it's just about the uniqueness of this particular family. It's actually about the saddest show on television. And um, just to be real, if any of you have ever seen it before, but for some reason, people love it. Right? They love to watch this show and cry and eat ice cream and swear they'll never watch it again and then watch it again the next week and cry and swear they'll never watch it. And it's just like this vicious cycle that America's been in for a couple of years. Um, if, you, if you've been left out of that, that's, uh, that's This Is Us. And the reason people are drawn to it is because of the power of family. Right? And they see these stories. There's something about it that connects with them. There's an element to it um, that they know is true, and that is their family shapes them. Um, for years to come. Another show um, that recently um, came back from about a 20-year hiatus um, is a show called Roseanne. Didn't expect to hear that in the pulpit this morning, did you? Um, Roseanne, right? Um, it's back, right? Uh, and about 29 million people watched the pilot, uh, what, 20, 25 years after it went off the air. One of the most popular shows on television when it was on. It comes back, picks right up where it left off. Here's the thing about that show. It's the story of a blue-collar family struggling to make ends meet and fighting with each other and arguing with each other. And like 99% of the show takes place in the kitchen or the living room of this one particular house with these family members uh, coming over and talking about it. And people connect with it. Right? They see something, elements in it. And both of these shows are filled with brokenness. Both of these shows are filled with all kinds of issues. I'm not endorsing either one of these shows. I'm making the point that there is a reason they connect with people in our country. And that reason is people see the stories. They see the relationships. They see the primacy of family. And it connects with them because deep down we know family is important. And that our stories are informed by our families. Instinctively we know that. And so... 
you'd think with all that that we would just be so great at doing family, but we're not, right? We're very flawed at it. We're broken individuals. We are sinful people, and we live in a sinful world, and we're not great at doing family. And the good news of the Bible is, is that God actually has a plan for the family, and he wants us to flourish. He wants our families to flourish. You want your family to flourish. God wants your family to flourish. He wants you to have healthy relationships. With your spouse. He wants you to have a healthy relationship with your children, with your parents, with your siblings. The question is always, are we going to do things God's way? Are we going to continue to pursue our way or find ourselves reverting back to our way and finding ourselves in brokenness over and over and over again? In Genesis 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 4, is the quintessential passage in the Bible on the family, especially verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 4. And it lays out clearly God's design for the family. And I want us to swim in that text for the next several weeks. In fact, um, we will learn, beginning this morning, that healthy, healthy families start with healthy marriages. That's why much of the passage, when Paul takes time uh, to talk about the family, he spends much, most of the passage talking about the husband-wife relationship because healthy families start with healthy marriages. In fact, as Tim, Pastor Tim Keller notes in his work, quote, The Meaning of Marriage, the name of the book, he says, quote, children who grow up in married two-parent families, this is statistically proven, married two-parent families have two to three times more positive life outcomes than those who do not. See, marriage is the cornerstone of the family. The stats bear it out. The Bible bears it out. And healthy marriages help foster healthy families. So this morning, I want us to show some foundational truths um, about marriage because that is that cornerstone of the family because marriage is where home begins. It's, it's where the family begins. It, it's the most critical relationship of every relationship in your life. If you're married, of every relationship in your, in your life, other than your relationship with the Lord, the most important one is the one with your spouse. So look with me back again at verses 31 through 33 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. We're going to reread that because that's where we're going to zero in on this morning to launch us off into this series. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul, and one of the main themes of Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus, is how Christ has reconciled and is reconciling the world to himself. It is in Christ that God reconciles people to himself. It is in Christ that God is reconciling the cosmos to himself. In Christ, God is putting everything in its proper place. And in Christ, God has created one people, a blood-bought people, right? A spiritual body called the church. It's made up of both Jew and Gentile that believes in Jesus, all nations and tribes and tongues that believe in Jesus. And Ephesians speaks to that. This, all these themes of reconciliation flow throughout the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians 5, Paul, here in this passage, begins to address how the Christian family is supposed to relate to one another in light of this reconciliation. As we are reconciled to God, how does that change how we relate to one another in the family? Should that have an impact? Well, of course it should. In verses 31 through 33 that we just read are in the context of Paul telling husbands that they're to love their wives as Christ loved the church, as was read to you just before I got up here. How they are to take care of their spouse, take care of their wives, just as they take care of their own selves and their own flesh. And it's in that context that Paul goes into verse 31, which is a quote from Genesis. He's going back to the original creation account talk about marriage here. And Genesis 2.24 is the passage. And in the biblical narrative, the first relationship created 
other than the one man had with God is that with his wife. Adam had a wife before he had any other friends, and they had each other before they had children. And marriage, we see, is the heart of the family. And as such, marriage is God's idea, all right? It's God's idea. So that's why we can come to a passage like this with all of our brokenness, with all of our hurt, with all of our issues, and we can have hope because we know marriage is God's idea and family is God's idea. And if you read Genesis 1 through 3, you'll learn a lot about the first family that was ever on the face of the earth. You'll learn that God created Adam and then he created Eve and he created her with marriage in mind for the two of them. And the first marriage was performed by God himself. And because, therefore, we see that marriage is God's idea, his creation. And what we begin to learn as we look at Genesis 1 through 3 is that God knows best about all things, but also he knows best about marriage. And he tells them, he says, I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. Well, what is that talking about? Children, right? And children are also God's idea. So the whole family unit's God's idea, and the whole order of it is God's idea. And it's right there in the very beginning in the creation account. That's how central family is to humanity, is it's right there in the beginning when the first people are created. And so when we come to questions like that we get in our culture, like, well, what is marriage? You talk about marriage this morning. Well, what, how do we even, what, what even is a marriage? Can, can this guy and this girl who've been living together a long time, but they've never actually, quote, unquote, got married, are they married? Or can, can these two guys or these two girls that love each other, can they be married? Well, here's what we have to understand. God gets to define marriage because God created marriage. So however God defines it, According to what we believe, as Bible believers, we believe that God gets to tell us what a marriage is, what a marriage isn't. Not only that, when a marriage ends and when a marriage doesn't. And not only that, how marriage is supposed to function. And what my role is as a husband or what a wife's role is or what the children's role is. How we, uh, how we parent, all those sort of things are to be informed by the Bible if we believe the Bible to be God's word. When I was a kid... I used to, um, I, had, I came up with this uh, game in my backyard, right? I invented it. I got some white spray paint, and I went out in the backyard, and I'm sure my dad loved this because he loved our yard. And I got out there, and we had the best yard in Cherokee, Alabama. And uh, it was like 30 yards. We were best. And I went out there, and I spray painted all around out there and created this white spray painted um, um, court, if you will. And I went and got one of those big bouncy balls like they used to sell at Walmart that were in the cages, you know, that you would pop out, and it'd go you know, knocking stuff down. I don't even know if they sell them anymore. I've never seen anybody buy one, but I bought one, right? The thing was always full, so it was like, do people buy these? And so I bought one of those. I took that back, and I created this game that was like this weird combination of tennis and volleyball and badminton and, I don't know, bowling. I don't know. It was like this weird game, right? And you're diving all over the yard, and we're kids. You know, I'd have friends over, and they'd be like, oh, this is a that. And I'm like, now let me explain to you. That wasn't in, that was out, or that wasn't out, that was in. And you can't do that, and you can't do this. And I would begin to explain the rules to them. And if they tried to object and say, well, no, that doesn't sound right, or that doesn't sound fair, I could quickly remind them, I made the game. It's my idea. I make the rules, right? Now, I was a bit of a smart aleck. Fortunately for us, God's not like that. But he did make marriage, and it is his. It's not ours, ultimately. He owns it. He's got the copyright, and he gets to decide what a marriage is and what a marriage isn't. And so that's just something, that's just a very simple thing we believe as Bible believers. In verse 31 here in chapter 5, quoting Genesis 2, 24, tells us that it starts with an echoing right there, the Garden of Eden, that it starts with a man and his wife. God's design in Genesis, echoed by Paul in Ephesians, shows us that marriage is one man and one woman united in a covenant relationship before God 
for life. You go back and you read the Genesis account, that's what you would come away with. You'd see God doing the marriage. You'd see it was God's idea. And you'd see when God planned it, he said, you know, I'm going to take this man and I'm going to take this woman and I'm going to put these two people together. And you see God's uh, sovereign hand all over the marriage taking place there. And so other takes on marriage, such as polygamy, right? A man with several women or what is called today homosexual marriage or all these are we would say, biblically speaking, are distortions of God's design, right? And there's all kinds of distortion to God's design. Divorce is a distortion of God's design. Um, Just the very fact that we have so many problems in our marriages to begin with show us there's all kinds of problems. And all all this is going back to that Genesis account where sin actually entered the world. Because the Genesis reference reminds us not only of God's design, but it reminds us of our sin. The reason we can't agree on so much of this stuff and the reason there's so much disagreement and the reason there's so much marital problems and the reason there's marriage counselors that make all kinds of money to sit and talk to people about their marriage problems and the reason there's divorce court and people that can just make so much money on helping people unmarry, right? And the reason we divide and debate over what a marriage is, the reason that all this happens in the first place is because sin entered the picture. And God's design begins to get distorted and we begin to manipulate it and we begin to not operate according to it. But God specifically created and he designed two different genders to complement one another and to complement one another in marriage. Men and women are different for a reason and we're both created equally in God's image. And when you either have two genders trying to become one or a man and two or three women trying to become one, you have a distortion of God's design and a fundamental flaw in the foundation. And you ultimately have something that's really not a marriage to begin with. And all this takes place because sin has entered the world. And so immorality and adultery and homosexuality and gay marriage and divorce, these are all signs of the brokenness that is in our society ever since back in Genesis 3. And a healthy marriage will be one that recognizes that the very relationship is from God and therefore his design must be pursued if we're to experience the richness of that, the, richness, the richest form of marriage. Notice three things here about marriage that we must understand if we're going to pursue God's design to the fullest. Okay, I'm going to give you just three bedrock things. There's other things, but man, there's right here out of these three verses, three things that kind of help us launch off on marriage here. First of all, marriage is a sacred union. You see that in verse 31. Marriage happens when a man and a woman leave their families and hold fast to one another in a new family. That's when a new family begins, according to Ephesians and Genesis. They become one flesh. This is a God thing. God has designed it this way, so therefore it is sacred because God's involved, right? He is the one that says there's one flesh, right? And so we've got a sacred union between a man and a woman before God. Now you say, what does it mean here? Well, let's let's kind of break this verse down a little bit. When he says they shall leave father and mother and they shall hold fast to one another, the the word in the Greek means to join. It literally is a picture of two things being glued together, right? And there's a difference in something being nailed together or tied together and something being glued together. It's the idea of, man, it just being as close as you can possibly imagine, it being bonded, it being welded together. And that's the picture we see here of marriage. And it happens to such a degree that the two become one flesh. And it's meant to be a permanent union. It's a commitment where the two, there was two, now there is one entity, one family. This is not to be undone. And God's design from the beginning was for two people joining together like glue to become one for life. Now we understand if you've been in church very long, you've heard that. We know that. We also know that's not always what we experience in life. But that is God's design. That is God's purpose in life. And because of sin and brokenness in the world, we don't always see it played out that way. But God's design is for this to be a permanent union between a husband and wife for life. Now, For this to happen, they have to leave father and mother. And the Greek word 
means there to leave behind. That's the picture. You're leaving one way of life for another. You're leaving one family for another. A new family is being formed. This has massive implications when you think about it. There's really hardly much way for this to happen without there to be some, some, some real thought going into this. You're saying you're leaving this family, and you're leaving this family, and you're joining a new family. It doesn't mean you're not family anymore with these other people. It does mean your priorities are shifting. For instance, we haven't properly left. If we call our mom or dad every time we and our spouse have a disagreement and use our parents to gang up on our spouse, that's not properly, quote-unquote, leaving and cleaving. We literally violate God's design for marriage when we do that. You have a new union. And that doesn't mean you can't seek the counsel of your parents. It does mean that your ultimate loyalty is now to your spouse. It absolutely means that. And the practical outworking of a sacred union should be intimacy. And that's what I really want you to see under this point. We must pursue intimacy in marriage. And there's two kinds that the Bible speaks to, I think, because of this one flesh union. The first is physical intimacy. The two becoming one passage speaks to the sexual relationship, but, but it speaks to a whole lot more than that. But it does not speak to less than that. Paul uses Genesis 2.24 um, in 1 Corinthians to forbid the sexual relationship uh, between people outside of marriage. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to read verse 16, then I'm going to skip down and read verse 18. Paul writes to the Corinthians, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Flee, he goes on to say, from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. See, the physical manifestation of this sacred union is the physical, the sexual relationship in marriage. And remember, that word join or hold fast, that word become one. And he's saying sexual, sexual intimacy is meant to be the bonding force of marriage, and that's what it's meant to be reserved for. This is one of the reasons sexual immorality is so dangerous and why Paul warns against it in 1 Corinthians 6. It takes something meant for unifying a married couple and applies it to those who aren't. It practices holding fast without actually holding fast. It's a physical union without true union before God. It's dangerous. It's destructive. In fact, it's the only sin in the entire Bible that the Bible says when you commit it, you sin against your own body. Now, we live in a the time of the sexual revolution, and we've got refugees all over the place from this, and there are hardly anyone on the face of the planet, or in our culture, I should say, that has in some way been affected by this. And we're grateful for God's grace and for God's mercy and for God's healing that he can bring. And at the same time, we have to be willing to speak out and kind of say, man, when this is applied, when you take something that's meant for marriage and you apply it outside of marriage, you are bringing destruction. You are inviting destruction and pain and hurt into your life. Now, physical intimacy in marriage isn't everything, but it is important. It's very important to the point that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes about a half a chapter just on it, encouraging husbands and wives to engage in physical intimacy. So that's how important it is. That's New Testament, right? It's so important that we've got the book of the Song of Solomon, which is all about the romantic relationship between a husband and a wife because the Bible actually does think it's important. Because it is to be pursued and it is to be protected within marriage because marriage is a sacred union. And it is the physical manifestation of that. But there's another manifestation of that that's important and that runs congruent to this and reinforces the physical. And that is the relational and spiritual intimacy. And this happens in friendship. Since marriage is a union of two becoming one, the primary priority of marriage in many ways is friendship. You can't properly function as one if you're not friends. And friendship, at its best, is always spiritually centered on Christ and on his word. The Genesis narrative shows us that marriage, at its core, is friendship. In Genesis 1, 
after God creates the heavens and the earth and he fills them and then he creates Adam, the first man, and you have Adam standing there in paradise, this perfect little Eden with no sin, right? Sin has not entered the picture yet. Adam's just there, man, just enjoying paradise. And this is what God says in Genesis 1.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So originally, the first words out of the mouth of God about marriage are this. Adam needs a friend. That's what he's saying. It's not good that he be alone. He needs community. He needs friendship. Not because sin has entered in the world. No, it has nothing to do with sin at all. It's just the way we're wired. And then we see God has Adam name all the animals. He has all the animals that are created get named. But none of them are fit for Adam. And then God has Adam fall asleep. And God creates Eve. And what we learn in the story is that our need for community, our need for friendship is not fall-induced. It is creation-implied. It, it, it is inherent in who we are and is people who are made in the image of God. If you're made in the image of God, and every person on the face of the planet is, then you are created with the, with the need for community and for friendship. Think, God, think about God for a second. It's his image we're created in. God exists in community within himself. We call this the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they exist in perfect friendship for all of eternity. And being made in God's image, we are created for community and friendship. And primarily that first comes through relationship with God. That, that's the primary one. But we're not just created for vertical friendship. We're seeing here in Genesis, we're created for horizontal friendship. We, we need people like us. We need human beings to be friends with. And then the pinnacle of that friendship, right? The preeminent of the human friendship is supposed to be marriage. And before God told them to multiply, he made them friends. And that is the first thing he did. Now, being a great spouse begins with being a great friend. And I firmly believe that. If you're here and you're single and you think you're going to get married one day and you hope to get married one day, the training ground for being a good husband, the training ground for being a good wife is not hopping from one random date to another or one long needless boyfriend or girlfriend to another. It is friendship. It is friendship. It's when we stop Tending the friendship, for those of us that are married this morning, it's when we stop tending the friendship that people get lazy in the relationship and they get mean. It's when we stop forgiving each other and we start growing cold to one another. It's harder to, it, it's harder to grow callous and unforgiving towards a friend than it is a stranger. The better you know someone, the harder it is to hate them or to dislike them or to stay angry at them. It's, in some ways, it might be easier to get angry at them, but it's harder to stay that way because you love them. And when we stop tending the friendship, the marriage is at risk. If we only apply the marriage verses in the Bible, right? And there's some marriage verses in the Bible, but the Bible is not a book primarily about marriage. And so if we just take the marriage verses in the Bible and apply those to our marriage, we're going to be in trouble. We've got to take all the Bible and apply it to marriage. And particularly, we've got to take all the relationship advice and all the stuff the Bible says about friendship and forgiving people and loving one another and how you treat other Christians and serving people, all that sort of stuff. We have to take that and we have to apply that to marriage, right? Because marriage is more than, but it is not less than, a friendship. It's about love and patience and forgiveness and confession and humility and service and compassion. It's about truly caring for another person sacrificially, listening to someone else, enjoying life with someone else. It's about following Christ together at its best. And if the friendship is healthy, everything gets better. Everything. And if the friendship is not healthy, everything gets worse. Everything. 
to laugh together and do things together. Christy and I, we watch TV together, right? And so sometimes that means we watch TV that the other person doesn't necessarily care about. All right, so even if we're watching TV, that means she watches a lot of Alabama football games. And she watches a lot more things that she don't care about than I watch that I don't care about because she's a better friend than I am. Uh, just being honest. She's way better at that than I am. But, but it's just doing stuff together, and it's doing nothing together. It's all that sort of stuff. Well, we just like to spend quality time together. Man, you can search to Jesus comes back for quality time, but it's always found in quantity. It's always found in quantity. It's not always about the special moment you carve out and you're like, well, we're, well that, it rains that day and it kills your beach day. Or, man, something happens financially and you don't get to take that trip. Man, if you build your life around quality, you'll miss out on qua- quantity. And quality is found within quality. And it springs up sometimes when you least expend it. So spend a quantity of time, a lot of time together. Build a friendship. And if you're single and you ask, how can I prepare for intimacy with my spouse? Well, you prepare for physical intimacy by practicing sexual purity. Andy Stanley has it right when he says purity paves the way for intimacy. That is true. It it, it prepares that safe place for intimacy. And as you prepare for relational intimacy, you do that by learning to be a good friend and applying that. And if you're married, you say, how can I pursue and protect intimacy in my marriage? Well, you pursue and protect your marriage bed, right? You do that. Sexual purity matters after marriage as much as it matters before. Guard your eyes, guard your heart, and cultivate a healthy relationship. But you also pursue and protect your friendship. Learn to be best friends. Learn to do things together and learn to date and learn to spend time together. Because one day, for those this hasn't happened to yet, those kids are going to leave the house, right? And you can be left with a stranger or you can be left with a best friend. A lot of that is determined by what you do with those 18, 20 years or whatever in between when you're raising children. Marriage is a sacred union. And that means we need to pursue intimacy within it, both physically, relationally, and spiritually. Secondly, marriage is a gospel reflection. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul here lets us in on something amazing, something that they didn't understand in the Old Testament, that the relationship between a husband and a wife is designed to be a reflection of Jesus and his church. When God designed marriage, he had Jesus and the church on his mind. And as we will see in the weeks to come, the motivations for the husband to love his wife and for the wife to submit to her husband are all rooted in gospel implications, the gospel relationship between Christ and his church. This is a mystery that has now been revealed in the New Testament. See, marriage is about the gospel. And the gospel should inform my marriage and the gospel should transform how I view my marriage and how I view its purpose. See, it should inform how I think about marriage, how I treat my spouse. should be informed by how about the gospel and Jesus' relationship with his people. It should transform my view on marriage because now I see it's bigger than me. It's about a witness to a watching world as well. Way more is at stake in your marriage than your happiness. I'm not saying your happiness is not important. I'm just saying a lot more is at stake as we're finding out here in Ephesians. See, our marriages preach. I'm not a preacher. Oh, your marriage is preaching. If you're a Christian, your marriage preaches. It's supposed to preach to you and to others. Remember, major theme of Ephesians is what? Reconciliation, right? That in in Christ, God is reconciling, right? And so for sinners, that means when we turn from our sin and embrace Christ on the cross, Christ died for our sin. He bore the wrath we deserve, our punishment. He rose from the dead after that. And when we repent of our sin and place our faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God. Jesus has taken our sin. He gives us his sinless righteousness. That happens, right? And we're reconciled. We're made friends with God. And the heart of reconciliation is what God has done in purchasing a people 
called the church and reconciling them to himself. And the preeminent illustration given for that in the Bible is marriage. Right? That's God's illustration for us. Our marriages are preaching. And they should preach the reconciling power of the gospel. And when we serve one another and forgive one another and love one another and help one another, we are preaching, look what God can do in Christ. That's what we're doing. And believer, our marriage is a witness to the watching world. And if we don't have healthy marriages, we can't have healthy witnesses. They don't just preach to others, though. They're supposed to preach to us. We should be living illustrations to our spouses of God's love and God's grace towards them. As much as it depends on us. A wife should see how her husband loves her and go, wow. And this is only a shadow and weak fraction compared to how Christ loves me. And a husband should see how his wife respectfully submits to his leadership in the home and go, wow, how much more should I be submissive to Christ? See, if it's not preaching to us, it's probably not preaching to others either. It's a, the gospel is supposed to inform how I treat my wife and how she treats me and how we relate with one another. And it's supposed to just completely transform how we look at marriage in general because it tells us that, man, marriage is a witness. And if our marriages are ultimately about the gospel, then Jesus Christ must be at the center. The core ingredient is missing if he's not. If Christ is not at the center of a union created for the purpose of portraying his relationship with his people, the very foundation is either missing or cracked in that relationship. You look at unbelievers, it's missing. You know, people that just, for some reason, they're not walking with God in that moment, it's like a crack being in the foundation. Don't be shocked. If you're a believer in Christ, when your family is gets disconnected to regular faithful involvement in the local church and marriage problems get worse. That should surprise us, right? It's in in the fabric of the union. The gospel is woven into it. Christ and his church are woven into the very fabric of it. In 2016, a study was released by the Institute of Family Studies. It stated that couples who go to church together regularly report being happier than those that don't. 78% of those couples who go to church together regularly reported being very or extremely happy. Here's my point. Christ and his church should be a priority in our marriages because we know and love Jesus. And however, if the relationship between Jesus and his church are to inform our marriage, and if our marriage is to portray something about that, how can that happen if we aren't connected to the local church? Does it make sense? And on top of it all, statistically, we have a better chance at happiness when we're connected to the local church. It's just like, just, that's no guarantee. That's no guarantee at all. We're just talking stats. If you're single, one of the best ways you can prepare for marriage is by pursuing Christ and being involved in his church. You'll learn more about people, about friendship, about forgiveness, about plugging in and doing life with other people in the church than you can learn from reading 10 books about marriage. Not that those are bad or not important. But we can't cultivate the healthiest relationship with a spouse that we could if we don't have a healthy one with Christ. And we can't have a healthy relationship with Christ apart from connection to the local church. It all fits together. That's one of the wonderful mysteries being unveiled to us in the New Testament. So marriage is a gospel reflection. So we need to be pursuing Christ and Christ's likeness in our marriages. Thirdly, marriage is a personal responsibility. Marriage is a personal responsibility. Look at verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, this verse is a summary verse of the roles that have been explained earlier that we're going to break down in the weeks to come. So we're not going to spend a lot of time breaking that down because we're going to get to it. But, but now I want you to notice this. Notice just the element of responsibility. 
Paul calls husbands and he calls wives to embrace and be responsible for their own roles. The husband is to love his wife. And the wife is to see that she respects her husband. The wife is not to make the husband love her, nor is the husband to make his wife respect him. You might as well try to grasp oil in your hand, right? It's not the way it works. You're to own your verse. Own and embrace your role. And if the husband leads out, much of this usually takes care of itself. That's why Paul spends so much time talking to us husbands, to the men. A major part of a healthy marriage and therefore home was when each spouse takes responsibility for their God-given role in the home. Apart from that, you get dysfunction. But all you can do is what you can do, right? You can do what depends on you, which is your role. You can't, you can't perform their role for them, whatever that may be. Ladies, you cannot make your husband lead. You should expect him to. You can have a posture that, that receives that, but you can't manipulate it and make him lead spiritually in, in your home. You can commit to your calling and your role. And you can pray for God to change his heart. And, and men, you can't make your wife respect you, for that matter, submit to your leadership in the home. However, you can love her. And you can love her no matter what her attitude is towards you. And you can pray for her. So we have to beware of backseat driving. You know what a backseat driver is, right? I'm not a great driver, so I get that a lot, um, right? People, passenger seat drivers, right? Hey, are you going to do this? Are you going to turn there? Are you gonna, you're going too fast. You're going too slow. It's like, just drive. You know what I'm saying? But we like to do that, right? You'll get a little control-oriented. We want to tell people how to do this and how to do that, and we just, let's let me drive, right? And we can do that in marriage if we're not careful. We begin to reach for our other spouse's, our spouse's will and try to tell them, well, you, you know, if you, would just, if you would just follow my leadership, you don't love me. You don't love me well, right? And then we yell these things at each other. Right? Man, you're lame. Love your spouse. Serve your spouse. Pray for your spouse. Doesn't mean you can't address things with your spouse. Doesn't mean you can't call out sin. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying the attitude and the way in which we do that matters greatly. And you're all, I'm trying, I want to free you up that if you've got a spouse that just refuses to walk with the Lord, refuses to honor the Lord, refuses to embrace the God-given design for your marriage, man, let me just free you up to say this, you can't do it for them, and God doesn't expect you to do it for them. But he does expect you to do your thing, your role, and to pray for them and to love them and to encourage them. And it's real simple. If we want a home that is experiencing God's best, it starts with pursuing our own personal responsibilities within the home. There are no guarantees. There's no guarantee that our spouse will, will get saved, that they'll be a better leader, or they'll have a better attitude. There's no guarantee that our kids will get saved. They'll be awesome people. No guarantees of any of that stuff. But pursuing God's best in your home does start with pursuing God's design personally. And it does create an environment where God can work in powerful ways in your marriage and in the hearts and lives of your children. Marriage is a sacred union. And to flourish, it requires relational and physical intimacy. So we need to be pursuing and protect, protecting that intimacy in marriage. And if we're single, we need to be preparing for it. And marriage is a gospel reflection. It's meant to preach to us and to others the glorious truth of what God has done in Christ for his people. And it's to inform how I treat my spouse and how I love and serve my spouse. So we need to be pursuing Christ and his likeness within our marriages. And marriage is a personal responsibility. You have to embrace your role. You need to be pursuing ownership of what God has called you to do, of loving your wife and 
respecting your husband. You're responsible for you. So if you're here this morning and you're single, the big word for you today is prepare. If you're here this morning and you're married, the big word for you today is pursue and protect. And if you're here this morning and you're a widow or a widower or you don't plan to ever marry, the big word for you this morning is pray. Pray for your children and your grandchildren and their marriages. Pray for those in our church. You have lots of wisdom to share with us, with people like me, from your marriages that we value and we esteem. Everybody's got a role in helping God's, the families of North Park flourish in the days, weeks, months, and years to come. What steps do you need to take to more faithfully pursue God's design for your marriage? God's best for your marriage starts at the cross. It starts with your sin being dealt with by Jesus. It's the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ that marriage ultimately points to. A husband's love for a wife is but a dim reflection of Christ's amazing love for his people. And so if nothing else this morning, if you've never come to that realization and personally put your faith and trust in Christ, that's really always step one. No matter what spiritual journey we're on, step one is always Jesus in relationship with him. So if you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, I want to encourage you to run towards Christ. The Bible says if you'll turn from your sin and embrace Christ by faith, believing he died in your place on the cross and rose from the dead, you can be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called upon him? Have you looked to him in faith? Maybe you're here this morning and you just need some time in prayer for your marriage or for a friend's marriage or for your kid's or grandkid's marriage or whatever it may be. This family series starts with marriage. It starts with marriage. Marriage is the cornerstone. We want to have and pursue healthy marriages. Let's pray together.